Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Adventist Hour podcast. I am your host, Andrew Muller, pastor in training at uh, Walla Walla University. Today we will be talking with Dave Thomas about Christian apologetics. A wonderful topic, and, and one in which, uh, if I ever do get my doctorate, I think it would be in the area of Christian apologetics. That being said, thank you all for listening, and enjoy. Hello, Andrew. Good afternoon, DT. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. Thanks for uh, willing to be interviewed on uh, Christian Apologetics. All right. Would you like to begin with uh, prayer or should I? You can do it. You're in charge. All right. Dear Lord. Thank you for this uh, blessed afternoon. I know it's chilly out, but uh, thank you that it, it's uh, not not raining. And please let it remain that way for the rest of the week. Please bless this discussion and be with us as we discuss more about Christian apologetics in this upcoming half an hour to an hour. In name I pray. Amen. Amen. So to begin our interview today, Dr. Thomas, would you please tell those who are, because this is going on my podcast and up on YouTube as I sent you in, in the email, could you please tell those who are listening or watching a little bit, a little bit about yourself, what you specialize in and why you came to work for Walla Walla and things like that? Well, I, um, I was born an Englishman. I immigrated to the United States when I was about to go to college. My whole family, my parents all moved over here. We started life again. And uh, I studied theology in college. And then I served, I worked for 24 years as a church pastor. I pastored in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And then in Washington State, where I live now. Um, along the way, well, I'm married. I have two sons. Um, I became a teacher because I felt convinced when the invitation came that I should do that. Um, you know, I have tried to live life by following convictions, not by following signs. I don't like to pray God for signs. I pray for God to grow convictions. And when the invitation came to me to come to Walla University to teach, well, because they asked me to be the dean of the School of Theology, it was a bit of a, a big shock to me. But as I processed that over a period of a few weeks, a conviction came that I so I made the decision to come. And uh, for the last 20 years, I've been working here, uh, interacting with students. Um, I was the dean for 17 years, and then uh, I'm the last. This is my third year now of being um, a t full time teacher, which gives me more time in the classroom, which is what I like the most anyway. Um, 
What are, what are my interests? Well, uh, my ideological or theological interests have to do with pastoral life and function, how churches work, how pastors should conduct themselves, preaching and things like that. And then also systematic theology. I like to see how Christian beliefs are synthesized and created. I like to learn something of the history of them, how they're established and founded on the Bible. And I've developed a subspecialty, which is uh, which would fit under the title of apologetics. And I don't know if your followers know what apologetics means. It sounds like we're being sorry for something, but the truth is that the original word apology meant to offer a defense for something. And so when we talk about Christian apologetics, we're talking about um, rationales, arguments, uh, thought systems that um, can be used to defend the Christian faith and to, to make it, uh, sustain it as something credible. All right. You actually answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, uh, how would, what's the definition of apolog apologetics? Because it does sound like we're sorry for something. <laughs> but I know well, it comes from they, they also use this in the legal um, legal system where your, your lawyer makes an apology for you. That doesn't mean that the lawyer was, was saying, I'm sorry about my client. It's, it's offering a defense, um, making a case for you. So that's what apologetics is. Yeah. Knowing that uh, apologetics is the defense one makes, like you brought up, such as a lawyer on the behalf of, of his client. What are some key areas of apologetics you think that the uh, common layperson in the church should grasp a basic understanding of and why? Wow. Well, I think, Andrew, I would start this this answer by saying that I think we need to understand what Christianity is founded upon. I find a lot of people don't really understand that, is that a lot of people are looking to science to prove things. And science is very valuable, but in a narrow spectrum. You know, if you're trying to understand the material world and natural world, science can be very, very useful. If you're trying to understand the theological or the ideological world, science runs out of capacity. Uh, you know, that, um, and so Christianity is not founded on, on science. Uh, it's not founded on philosophy either, although Christianity has, has historically made very good use of philosophy, that philosophy and theology are trying in many ways to do the same thing. We are trying to establish a credible rationale for life and for living. And philosophers do this, uh, and theologians do this. They use the same kinds of argumentation, and, th and theologians have used philosophy effectively, uh, and, and it's a valuable thing. Um, but Christianity is not founded on philosophical argument, uh, nor is it founded on the the mysterious um, insights of people who are into mysticism, you know, those who like to get off into meditation of various kinds. Christianity is not founded on that. Christianity is founded on historical events that uh, Christians believe that God has acted within history, within time and place in ways that human beings can see and understand and interact with. And so um, the Bible is a residual record it's not a complete record, and, and uh, you know, I don't want anybody to get upset about that. Paul himself said we see dimly, and John in his gospel said multiple times that Jesus did many other things that are not written here. So 
we have to understand that the Bible is a residual and it's an anthology. It's multiple authors who have written this over a period of 15, 1600 years. Uh, and what is in the Bible is a collection of historical records and stories and reflections on those stories. So it's not just a record of God's actions, but it's also a record of how the Christian community reacted to them. And, and sometimes we rebelled against it. We rejected the, the words of God. Sometimes the people re reacted favorably. But by looking at those, we gain an understanding of the big plan of God. We don't get all the details. Okay, the details, some of them are there, but there are many things that God has done that are not recorded. And so I like to say that the Bible is a sufficient document, but it's not an exhaustive one. Okay, there are many issues that the Bible never speaks to, but there's enough there that we can believe. And so uh, the first thing I would say uh, uh, to, to people is that if you're looking at Christianity, understand that it is anchored in history, that the events that we look back on are real events. Okay, there was a Jesus of Nazareth, there was a Moses, uh, there was a resurrection, uh, there was, um, you know, rebellion amongst the Israelites, that those things we read about are events in history. So we're not just speculating here. We're, we're reacting to things that people like you and like me long ago were absolutely persuaded were acts of God. Okay, and they were so gripped by that realization that it affected the rest of their lives. See, um, they're... they're um, they hold on to those beliefs. Well, those beliefs drive them forward, even even in 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 spite of the fear of persecution and death. So, um, I think the historical credentials of Christianity are one place that I would really like to to people to settle down. We're not we're not arguing philosophy. We're not playing around with scientific experimentation. We are looking at events in history that people were so convinced were acts of God that they wrote them down and and their lives were affected by them. And they invite us to to accept their testimony and let our lives be affected by that as well. And by the way, Andrew, that makes a big difference, OK? Because if, if we're just building on speculation, on, on guesses and stuff, well, then, I mean, you, you, you don't have a solid foundation. Uh, I am very happy um, about what, what we sometimes refer to as the historicity of Christianity. We are anchored in real events, see? And I mean, Another little piece that I would add to this is that in many religious and philosophical structures, it is the responsibility of the human being to somehow get, gain access to God. How do I get up to where God is, so to speak? Uh, the Christian belief is that we, we can't get up to God. There's a, a great gap between us and God because of this thing called sin. And so God has come down. God has come down into human history in ways that we can see and understand and be affected by. That's true. That's true. But I, I know just growing up personally that I was always a staunch defender of, of the, the Christian faith. And that's why apologetics kind of in, intrigues me as, as a subject in, in general. But what what are so 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 Christianity is anchored in in history and the historicity of of Christianity and just looking at that could could you explore that a little bit further? Well, you know I I have to think about that. Um, 
I mean, I, I guess I guess what I would say is that if Christianity is mere speculation, philosophical speculation, I don't see that it has a lot of substance. Uh, I can I can argue that you as a philosopher, if you are one, have started at a bogus point and therefore no matter what you say, even if it seems to make sense, I, I, I don't have to subscribe to it. But it's pretty hard to argue with history, Andrew. Now we can debate the interpretation of history, but but you, you, you can't really argue with a historical happening. If it took place, then we have to look at it and we have to make decisions about it. And um, I happen to think that the testimony of an honest person is one of the most reliable things we have in life, okay? If you are an honorable man and I am an honorable man and we make an agreement, the odds of that being fulfilled are very high compared to if I just signed a contract with a charlatan. Okay, I can have a paper that sign it with a crook. What's the good of the paper? See, and I like the days when men would shake hands and say it's a deal and they didn't even need a contract. Because uh, we both know this event took place in history, and and so I I'm overjoyed that, that the the faith I subscribe to is anchored in historical events that sometimes are interpreted for us. You know, sometimes the Bible actually tells us the meaning of of things, but other times the the believing community is left to figure it out and to develop their ideas on their own. Um, see, and so um, I, I'm very happy over the over the what I call the historicity of the Christian faith. It's a very solid base on which to build. And, um, you know, we, as I say, we can argue about what kind of interpretations we give to events, but we can't argue about the events themselves. That's true. Uh, for those who might be listening to this podcast, you aren't, uh, aren't members of the Christian faith or are just new, new to the Christian faith, what are the some some key events in in history that support the Christian faith as as being the one true religion? Well, I, I mean, there there are a number of events that I think are of enormous significance. I think probably the most distinctive one is the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Christians believe that after Jesus was crucified that on the third day after he was crucified, he was brought back to life again. And, uh, you know, if that is a true event in history, Andrew, if that actually happened, then Christians are dealing with some very different things than anybody else is dealing with. Because, you know, Jesus is doubly critical to the Christian faith. He's not only the founder, and, you know, every religion had a founder, so Jesus is, is on par with everybody else as, as a founder of whatever religion you want to look at. But he's also the agent. In other words, as a Christian, when I confess my sins, who actually goes about the task of forgiving them? And it, it's Jesus. He's the agent. Uh, who is it that will come again to earth to make up his kingdom? It's Jesus. Um, who is it that... that by providence sustains the believing community. It's it's through Christ. See, and so um, if Christ is not alive, if, if the resurrection of play, never took place, then Paul Paul is absolutely correct there in First Corinthians fifteen, where he says that we would be of all people most miserable. We have entertained a false hope that we have conjured up an idea that 
that has no substance, and it, we've raised the hopes of people to an enormous height, but it, it, it turns out to be a complete hoax. And so the resurrection, I think, is one of the absolutely cardinal uh, and critical events in, in, in human history. If that took place, and I think there's overwhelming evidence that it did, and we can talk about some of those, um, if that is true, then Christianity is of a different order than any other religion because they only have founders who are all dead. They have no no risen agent to make them function. So what are some of the, uh, what is some of the strongest evidence in support of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, I think the fact that uh, they found an empty tomb is one of them. And nobody disputed that, neither side disputed it. You don't find the the, the, the people who crucified Jesus and who buried him uh, arguing that, that, that the tomb is not empty. Every Everybody found an empty tomb and they all reacted to an empty tomb. So you, you have to face the fact that whatever rationale you want to give to this, the tomb was empty. So did the disciples steal the body? Did Jesus not die and sneaked out by some back way? Uh, uh, was there a resurrection? I mean, you, you have to face the fact that the starting point of this is that the tomb is empty. Um, everybody found it empty. Um, a second thing you have to look at that, that interests me is that before Jesus died, he had made a comment about coming to life again, and the, the, the authorities knew about it. And so they took very precise precautions to make sure that, that Jesus stayed in the tomb. And what did they do? Well, they put him in a tomb with a about we think about a two and a half ton stone that rolled in front of it so no, no one person could come and roll that stone you need about six people to roll that okay uh secondly they put a roman seal on there they they put some strings and some wax and sealed it there and i think it's important to know that the cost of breaking a roman seal in those days was death if you were had charge of a roman seal and it got broken while you were in charge of it it could cost you your life in addition to that, they put a whole bunch of Roman soldiers there. And we also need to know that in the Roman army, discipline was very tough. If you had care of a prisoner and the prisoner got away, the authorities didn't much care about that. They would simply say, oh, well, that's fine. Your prisoner got away, so it will be your life in place of the prisoner's life. And so you realize that these three things at least um, now are in place by the tomb. The tomb is closed. Jesus is in the tomb. The tomb is closed. It's sealed with a Roman seal and there's soldiers there. So uh, when you get to the Sunday morning and the story of the resurrection, you see the stone has to be rolled away because they couldn't have got Jesus out by any means. Uh, the Roman seal is broken. And to me, most interesting of all, the Roman soldiers who are potentially facing death are so astonished by what they saw, they go running into town telling everybody what happened. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, the the priests pay hush money to to save their lives. But um, you know, you think of that when you know that if you go and tell what happened, they could be coming for your neck and head. Why would you run around telling the story? You know, you would you would think that you would minimize it, um, but not so. And so, and plus. People pay hush money. Why do you pay hush money? Well, obviously something happened that they were trying to squelch. Okay. And then there's, a, there, there's another thing that's of interest to me is the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And there are, I don't know, from 10 to 14 of these that took place over the, the, the period of 40 days after Jesus came uh, to life. 
Sometimes he appeared to a single person like he did to Mary right after he was resurrected. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says at one time he appeared to 500 people who were gathered in one place. And Paul says in his day, many of them are still alive. So if you question this, you can go talk to them. Um, I'm also intrigued by um, the, the times he met with groups of people, the disciples, right? Um, and I, I particularly like the one of the two disciples walking to Emmaus and Jesus comes alongside of them and they don't recognize him until they get where they're going and then they realize who he is. So, you know, those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus are of significance that, it, that there were hundreds of people who saw him as a real person after the, after the resurrection. And the last one that, that is, uh, I think is of great significance, and I like what one historian said, I don't remember the historian's name, but he says that you can say whatever you want, but something happened uh, after Jesus' crucifixion that radically transformed the disciples in the Christian church. Prior to the resurrection, they were afraid and in hiding. And after the resurrection, especially after Pentecost, they become absolutely fearless. And you see in the book of Acts where the disciples are out preaching and they're threatened and told, you know, no more preaching. We're going to beat you. We're going to punish you and all this. And they said, well, we can't be silenced. We, we only can tell what we've seen and experienced. And they go on preaching anyway. And the, the Christian church explodes in, in terms of its growth and spread in the ancient world. That those people were so convinced that Jesus was alive, they became fearless and they propagated that religion all over the, the Mediterranean world. So that by the next century, which is, you know, if Jesus was crucified in 31 or, or 30, whatever, 30 something AD, 31 AD, um, by 100 AD, there are Christians in the household of Caesar in, in Rome. Okay, the people who work for the Caesar, even though it's highly illegal and you're putting your life at risk, they have now become Christians. See, So um, I think all of those things, uh, well, I would add one more here, that it seems to me that the, the priests acted like people who were somehow guilty or, or, or they realized an event had, had happened that caught them unawares, and so they are responding, trying to snuff it out and cover it over. So all of those things, I think, are, are pretty powerful evidence that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Yeah, I, I agree. What other key events in history point to God working throughout history and point to the Christian faith as being the the one true faith, if I'm phrasing that properly. Yeah, Yeah. well, I, I don't want us to think that only Christians will be in heaven, Andrew. Okay, I, I think that uh, Jesus himself said he had sheep of, of other fold, and I think the criteria of, of salvation are not necessarily that you have to become a named Christian. Uh, and we can talk about that if you want, but... Um, the, the, another event that I think is of enormous significance is the one in Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham. Now, that's, of course, pre-Christian, but it's very interesting. I had a friend point out to me that, that the, the main division of the Bible is not between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, because aside from the first few chapters, the first couple of chapters which describe to us paradise, the creation of paradise, 
from chapter 3 on down to 11, you see the massive decline of humans. You have the Cain and Abel story that then goes into the flood story, which then goes into Babel and all those things. And, and you know, life just devolves into, into chaos. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, you have this remarkable shift where God chooses a man named Abraham and says to him, Abraham, of all the people in the world, I want you to be my agent, and I'm going to make a covenant with you, and you, you, you know that covenant, Andrew, is, is very expansive. God said you will have many descendants, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through this. And so the rest of the Bible then becomes a story of how the descendants of Abraham, whether they be, um, you know, biological or, or spiritual descendants, how they have journeyed through history in anticipation of the, the, the next great event, which would be the return of Jesus. See, And so uh, the, the calling of Abraham, I think, is a, a very, very significant event because that's when God establishes what I like to call agency. He has now a person on earth who knows his plan and through whom he's working to convey the gospel to the, the rest of the world. So that would be another big event I would talk about, I would point to. So just uh, then, because you were saying earlier that uh, God has sheep of different folds, if you don't mind going deeper into that and what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, I mean, th th there, there was a, a long debate that goes on about um, what the bare essentials necessary for salvation are. And I know that there are a lot of conservative Christians, evangelicals, who, who like that text in Acts that says that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved except for Jesus Christ. And, you know, there are Christians who say that unless you've learned about Jesus and that you have said his name, appealed to him in his name for salvation, that you cannot be saved. Um, I don't think that's a, a very correct interpretation of that text, because what do you do with all the people in the Old Testament who never heard Jesus' name? Uh, you know, um, it's fine for us to say after Jesus was born that that became a criteria, but there's a whole, there's more Old Testament history than there is New Testament history. And, and I mean, are we just going to write off those people or say that they are saved by some other different means? I, I, I can't buy that, see. Um, so how you interpret that becomes uh, of great significance. I think that text is talking about Jesus as the agent of salvation. Whoever is saved is going to be saved because of what Jesus did. But I think it's possible that there will be people saved who don't know who Jesus is. See? And by the way, one of the reasons why Christians are missionaries and should be spreading the, the gospel is precisely to improve the odds of redemption for the human race. If you learn about Jesus, there's a much higher probability that you will come to, the, to faith and to trust him. But I, I wrestled with a question a long time ago about what, what are the, bare, no, the, the most basic requirements for salvation? And I think there are two of them. Uh, I think one is to recognize that there is something in your life that you cannot fix that causes you to get to the point where you are willing to give up autonomous living. See, that in order to be saved, I think you have to become dependent or, or deferential at least to, toward God. Okay, And so I think the first thing that happens that, that, that is necessary for salvation is that a person has to come to the point where for one reason or another, they are willing to surrender 
um, autonomous existence. They're willing to give up being the, the captains of their own ships and the masters of their own destiny. And the second criteria is that they then enter into a, we, we use the word dependent relationship with God. And that doesn't mean you give up your personality. It doesn't give up mean you give up your, your ambitions. It means now that you hold them open before God, allowing the Spirit of God to influence the way you live your life. Okay, And so these two things, I think, are, are essential. Um, the giving up of personal autonomy, and I think all of us are well aware that, that, that personal autonomy is the most fiercely defended thing in the universe. Yeah, you, most human beings... Um, get very upset over the idea that they should not live an autonomous life, especially in America. We want to have our own thing and do our own thing. And don't you tell me what to do. We fly that flag very boldly and very bravely and bigly is not a word, but, you know, we, we, we fly a big flag on that. And I, I've noticed in life that there are two things that bring people to the point where they're willing to defer to God. One is brokenness, that you, you find out that your life is messed up in a foundational way and you can't fix it. I see this played out in Alcoholics Anonymous and organizations like that where you have to face the reality that you're in a hole, uh, you're in there partly for your because of your own foolishness or misbehavior and you can't get out. And so what do you do? Well, you take an inventory and then you appeal to God for help. Another way I've seen people come is that they get a, they somehow catch a view of God that is so enchanting that they are willing to surrender their autonomy merely to join the family of God. I've seen people come from both sides of that equation, and so I, I'm not here to say which one is better. I know my own approach to God came through the realization of what it means to be a human, that we are spiritually dead and we are enslaved by the world, the devil, and our systems. And we're condemned. And when I realized that as a, as a young man, it struck me that I need a savior and I became profoundly grateful for one. So, you know, having come to the point of, of a willingness to defer to God, the next challenge that Christians face is how do I journey with God? And the answer to that is that you, you look to the scriptures to create a framework for your life and you open your life through devotional exercises and through thought and reading you open your life to the leadings of God, which oftentimes come from, by providence. There are, we say, doors open and close. Uh, my favorite one is the growth of convictions, as I mentioned earlier, that I think the Spirit of God is willing to grow convictions in our lives that we act upon. And I can tell you personally that whenever I have prayed for a conviction and gotten one and acted on it, it's led to joy and happiness. It's never led to grief and sorrow. See, Now, when I've made my own decisions, I've sometimes stubbed my toe, so to speak. But never when I followed a conviction which I prayed over and and thought about asking for the influence of the Spirit of God. See? And so I think that there are people even today who 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 pass those two, who, who, who fulfill those two criteria. And therefore, I think there will be some people saved in heaven who, who never knew who Jesus was. They just knew that the, the, the ethos of religion and, and, and spirituality has caught on in their lives. Of course, because of the influence of the Holy Spirit, even though they can't put names to it. And some people will want to string me up for what I just said, but my hide is pretty tough. No, that that's that's fair. J just to just to clarify, what does that mean for those who believe in different religions? If if 
Well, I, I think there's a lot of good and a lot of truth in many religions. I mean, a lot of the moral codes that people have and the rules that they live by are not far different from Christianity. There seems to be this, this kind of, you know, religions are very different. And some of them are very detrimental to human experience. Some of them have led people to commit suicide in the hopes of joining some other form of life. You know, I don't consider that to be good. Um, but I, I am not here to denigrate other religions. I, but I do think that whatever religion you subscribe to, if you end up in heaven, it will be because of what Jesus did at Calvary and what the Holy Spirit has done since Calvary. But isn't sort of the requirement to be saved, to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yeah, Especially I mean, that, when you have heard of, of him? Well, I, I think that if you have heard of Jesus, then you have a higher standard that you have to, I mean, you have a, a, a much bigger thing to wrestle with. But I, you know, I'm not somebody who likes to speculate a lot about that, Andrew. I'll tell you because I don't know who's worthy of redemption and who isn't because there are also some hypocritical Christians. You know, there are people who take the name of Christ, but their hearts are far from him. And so I don't like to speculate about that. I, I am convinced that God is doing his best to get as many people into heaven as he can to redeem from this world. I'm glad I'm not the one who makes that choice and I don't see the heart. I am very impressed with what Samuel was told when, when, when uh, you know, the first young man, Eliab, I think his name was, came before Samuel the prophet, and Samuel thought, oh, this is the guy I'm going to anoint, and he was he learned a lesson that I think all of us need to keep in mind, that we look on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, and so I, I certainly, because I'm a Christian, I mean, you, I, if I didn't think Christian Christianity was, was a religion that had the articulation of truth that was superior to other ones, I wouldn't be a Christian, I would be something else. But I don't want to make it an exclusive zone for redemption. I don't think only Christians will be saved, but I think everybody who is saved will be saved because of what Jesus did. Okay. That that makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for taking the, the time out of your day. All right, Andrew. I'm glad to have had this conversation. I found it kind of engaging. Yeah, I did too. I, I learned a lot. And I hope the those who are watching or listening this to, to this interview later will learn a lot from it and take away a lot from it. And maybe we'll do it again sometime. Maybe, maybe. Uh, would you like to pray to close yes. this out? I, I will close. I'll pray as we close. Father in heaven, thank you for this chance to visit with Andrew. Thank you for his desire and his work at uh, getting some information out uh, where other people can see it and maybe be affected by it. Please bless the words that have been said here to, that they might be an advantage to someone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See All, right, bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Hour podcast. If you have any questions or want to DM us or want to share a testimonial with us uh, or do anything like that, we do have an Instagram account at uh, it's under the Adventist hour. So the underscore Adventist underscore hour. 
you can DM, DM us there. Or we also have a Facebook group page that is under my account, uh, Andrew Moeller. And it says I'm attending Walla Walla University. Or send us an email to MullerMinistries at gmail.com. That is M-O-E-L-L-E-R Ministries at gmail.com. Again, it's M-O-E-L-L-E-R Ministries at gmail.com. And if you'd like to host an episode of the podcast or anything like that, feel free again to DM us. May God bless this upcoming week for you all and uh, for all the students that are listening, be it in college or be it in high school. I know college students are preparing for finals in the next couple of weeks. For those on quarter systems, for those on semester systems, you have a, about a month to go. But may God be with you all. Amen.